0: Father, I just, again, thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the gift of communion, Lord, where we can gather once a month and just focus on you and what you have done for us. So we pray this morning, again, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, accompany us as we open up your Word and grant us the ability to make it of permanent value, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, as you know, this is Communion Sunday, the day that we worship Christ and his cross. Jesus, on the night before he died, he met with his disciples to share one final Passover supper with him. Uh, It's found in Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, Jesus took bread, and he took wine, and he offered them up as symbols of his flesh and his blood. And then he asked his disciples to eat the bread and drink the cup so that they might symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood. He then asked them to remember, keep this remembrance on a regular basis, and we call it the Lord's Table, and we celebrate it once a month, and we do that by meditating on what it is the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, by examining ourselves, and that means asking God's Holy Spirit to point out areas in our lives where we are confessing and convicted of sin, and then by confessing our sins, and finally by participating in the elements John six fifty three says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, we're following the life of Christ this time in the gospel of Mark and where we are right now. His public ministry is beginning to wind to an end. He's been giving intense instruction to his disciples and the disciples have been fighting and bickering among themselves. <laughs> Jesus oftentimes finds himself surrounded by crowds, and once again, he's dealing this time with a a controversy with the Pharisees about divorce. We covered that last time. And Jesus is finishing up his his teaching on divorce, and in the midst of the crowd, there's many, many parents who who are pushing their kids forward in order to have Jesus bless them. And the disciples, just, just trying to be helpful, try to put a stop to it. And So we pick up our text at Mark 10, starting at verse 13. It says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we want to ask this morning, what what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? I mean, Jesus was indignant. He was was indignant because his disciples were mishandling something that he thought was absolutely critical. And so as he often did, he used this incident as a teaching device. Jesus said, "If, if you do not receive the kingdom as a child, you will not enter it. That's a pretty intense claim. That's one I think we need to explore. We, we need to ask okay, what do young children have that we have to have in order to enter the kingdom of God? Well, some say the answer to that is it's obvious. The answer to that is nothing. Nothing is what every child of God understands he has when it comes to earning heaven itself. And no one better represents our complete inability than children. I mean, as the hymn so elegantly puts it, nothing to thy throne I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There's a reason why we quote Dane Ortland each month. It's because the truth that he speaks is, is literally time. This is what Dane Ortlund says. He says, in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing you don't qualify. And what he's saying is it's, it's knowing you've got nothing. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. See, the reason why Jesus can identify <clears throat> children by saying to such belong the kingdom of God is that there's no other class of individual that's so marked by absolute helplessness than children now there's another thing that comes to children naturally in a word it's faith in this case childlike faith and the fact is the younger you are the more likely you are to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior a recent Gallup survey stated 19 out of 20 people who became Christians did so before the age of 25 At age 35, it's one in 50,000. At age 45, one in 200,000. At 55, one in 300,000. At 75, one in 700,000. Clearly, the older we get, the more miraculous coming to Christ becomes. I mean, I've had a part in raising kids, and I've been around kids for many, many years, and I, I would have to say that not once in all the years that I've ever been around, Youngsters, have I heard anyone from three to ten say, I just don't believe in your Jesus. It just doesn't happen. I've heard plenty of others, though, of all different kinds of ages, say that very thing. See, faith is, is for what many, many, uh, for a child, is what many, many adults would call magical thinking. And that is really believing that you can change the world by what's going on inside your head, by what it is that you believe and, of course, magical thinking can be a huge problem for adults. I mean, it's oftentimes a way that adults deal with stress, and it involves literally creating in your own mind the idea that believing in something can actually change it in, in reality. You now, in some worst-case scenarios, there's, there's been people literally climbing fences, walking into lion's dens, thinking that if they're nice to lions, lions are going to be nice back to them. You know, that kind of thinking almost always results in tragedy. But that's not what children are doing when they do that. The magical thinking that Jesus refers to as childlike faith is the belief that Jesus is exactly who mom and dad said he was. It's a belief that's completely accepted at face value because children have no frame of reference to deny what they've learned from their parents. And you don't have to be a child to have childlike faith. You just have to trust in Jesus implicitly. Now, the Roman centurion whose servant was dying. He asked Jesus to heal him. When Jesus sets off to his house, he's met by the centurion's servants. And they tell him, Master, don't, don't bother. The master said, you know, he says, I'm a soldier. I know how this works. I tell people to do stuff, and they do it. I also know, Jesus, that that you're the ultimate boss and whatever you say in heaven and on earth is going to happen. So all you have to do is is say the word and my servant's going to be healed. Well, that's childlike faith. That's expressed by an adult, but it's childlike faith. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who have been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So we can ask the question was well, was this centurion guilty of magical thinking? I mean, he certainly believed that what he trusted in was going to affect the outcome of his world. But you see, magical thinking is not the same as faith. There's a big difference between magical thinking and faith, and that difference is one looks inward at the power of belief itself, and the other looks outward at, at Jesus as the source of that power. Now, one simply relies on the power of belief itself as an entity in and of itself, and the other relies on Jesus Christ as the source of that faith. And we know it's it's extraordinarily easy for a child uh, to make that leap to have childlike faith. I mean, they simply take the trust that they have in mom and dad, and they just apply it to Jesus. You know, these little ones that come up here to sing almost every week, You ask them if Jesus is God, they're all going to nod their heads and they're all going to have big smiles on their face and they're going to say yes and they're actually going to mean it because they haven't had an opportunity for all of that yet to be challenged so they just accept it at face value. And that just points out, mom and dad, how incredibly important you are in shaping and forming your child's understanding of God. I mean, for better or for worse, it's a fact that your child's first impression of who God is will be the impression that he or she gets from mom and dad, mostly from dad. And again, God can do mighty miracles, but someone who is, is raised with an angry, dictatorial, cruel, or indifferent father can't help but see God in that very same mold. And whenever there's a huge disparity in power between an adult and a child, there's a responsibility on the part of the adult to recognize that power and to understand the danger of that being abused or neglected. And no one took that more seriously than Jesus. I mean, that's part of why Jesus said of those who cause little ones to stumble, he said, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And you know, it's easy to identify today, to identify cultural outsiders as the ones that are being fitted for millstones. You know, we got drag queen story hours. We got countless tales of, of these woke teachers, grooming youngsters for an acceptance of gender fluidity. And aberrant sexuality, and it's, it's easy to think that Jesus' words here, they, they really only apply to cultural outsiders. But most of us have little ones who look up to us, who place far more trust in us than we may think, and about whom God's going to ask us for an accounting. And so as we prepare to take the bread, I'd like us to think of the little ones, that you have a vital role in shaping And ask God to help us grow in the grace that we need for that role. Also, you want to ask God for the gift and ability to become childlike once again. I just want to give you the words that David McCasland speaks. It puts it well. He says this. He says, how I long to become more childlike each year with my heavenly father. Instead of more hesitant, more calculating, more insistent that he guarantee the results before I take a step of faith. Rather than becoming more cautious as I age, I want to become more daring in my walk with God. Instead of being obsessed with landing safely and looking good, I want to leap with humble, joyful abandon towards my heavenly Father's arms. And as we prepare for communion, I I bring to you 1 Corinthians 11, which gives us that warning. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And I I share this warning every single month. I speak about how the fact that communion is an extremely serious undertaking, and to enter into communion in an unworthy manner is to literally court disaster. And I repeat the warning. If you are not absolutely confident that you are a child of the king, that you are a child of Christ, if you haven't by faith trusted in Christ as your savior, or if you first need to be reconciled to your brother or sister before you bring the sacrifice of yourself to this altar, then don't participate. If you don't feel right about participating, then err on the side of caution. Get right with God first. And again, just to balance that on the other side of that, that don't start thinking that I have to be flawless and perfect in order to be worthy to receive communion because that too is a mistake the enemy loves. You see, being a child of the king doesn't mean that you don't sin. It doesn't mean that you don't fail. It does mean that we recognize that the salvation that we've been given is a gift that nobody has ever earned. That no one is capable of earning by being good. And that's when we quote Dane Ortland, who says, In the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. And we're also aware that, that when we fail, that we've sinned because we have God's spirit inside us. It's the Holy Spirit of God who convicts us. It's the spirit of God who gives us the ability to grieve at that sin knowing that we have a father who longs to forgive and to cleanse us. A father who says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So being a a child of the king, it does not mean that you are flawless and sinless. It means we understand our position, we understand who we are, we understand that we have an advocate in heaven right now speaking on our behalf. 1 John two one says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's the key, that because we understand we have this foreign righteousness, this alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's his. It belonged to Jesus, but he gave it to us through faith by trusting in his sacrifice on the cross. And so if you love your Lord, don't deny yourself the privilege that he purchased for you. He lived the life we were supposed to live, and he died the death we all deserve to die so that we could be here right now participating in this table. And as you think about participating, as you think about taking the bread, take a moment to ask yourself this morning, do I have a childlike faith in Christ? 1 Corinthians 11:23 says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so take and eat For better or for worse, children take in what adults deliver. It's the adults who really have to work. Sometimes they have to claw and scratch to get back to the place where they have simple childlike faith. Because we've seen a lot. I mean, we live in a world that's filled with horrors, a a world where pain and suffering and death are, are everywhere and anywhere, and our access to all of the suffering in the world is unlimited now through social media. So how do we, in spite of the enormity of the pain that we see each and every day, still come to Jesus with this childlike faith that is so necessary? Well, first we go to the cross. You see, God has told us over and over again that we need to trust Him in spite of all this evil that's right in front of our eyes, and He gives us as the reason to trust Him the cross. And that's what John 3.16 says right from the start. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, you know, it's one thing to claim that you love the world. It's another thing to, to back the claim up by saying that God's love was so great that he sent his only son to give us that eternal life. And we also know that that eternal life came at an incredible cost to the Father and the Son. Now Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And So we focus focus on Christ's willingness to pay the cost of rescuing us. And to do that, we, we study who Jesus was, we study what kind of life he lived, we study what kind of death he was willing to die. And we find that the more that we focus on that, the easier it is for us to find this childlike trust when life and circumstance shout that we should abandon it. Now, children trust mom and dad when they tell them that Jesus is real because they know and experience mom and dad's love. We grow childlike faith in the exact same way. We focus on the cross as Christ's ultimate proof of his love for us. And you know, one area that truly tests our ability to trust as a child is the the whole area of unanswered prayer. Or to put it more accurately, prayers that are answered with a no instead of a yes. We think Jesus... You said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Well, you know, just a few weeks ago, I I asked, and we asked as a church, in in Jesus' name for a young girl named Rebecca, this is a a girl from my son Benjamin's church in, in Maryland, a girl who just turned 17, that she would be healed of colon cancer. And like I mentioned last week, she died. Okay, so what went wrong? If you're putting it in a little child's way of understanding, I asked, I didn't get. And so we look at this thing from from Jesus' perspective first. We want to first put Jesus' words into context. When he said what he said, first of all, he was speaking to his disciples about the mighty works that they would be doing in his name. And you have to understand what that means, in Jesus' name. It's not simply to tack a phrase on the end of a set of requests. It's literally to pray as if you were Jesus. If you're going to pray in his name, you're praying as if you were him. Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world to do just that, to represent him. And he insists that if you represent him, you do so in thought, in word, and in deed. And so in effect, Jesus was saying, when you think like I think, when you trust like I trust, when you pray like I pray, I will answer your prayer. Well, how did Jesus pray? Well, we know it was always with an overarching proviso that Jesus himself uttered in the most difficult circumstance he was ever in. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, anticipating the physical torture that he was about to endure, as well as the far greater spiritual dimension of the one perfect sacrifice he was about to embrace, literally becoming sin on our behalf. And as hideous as the physical torture was that he was facing, it was no more than that that other thousands of other humans had faced. You see, the unspeakable torment that Jesus was staring directly into was his absolute perfection taking on the sin of the world. Now speaking of the Father, Paul tells us, for our sake he, that's the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus in that garden knew precisely what his Father's will was, and at that moment, in that garden, that was not his will at all. But he also knew that more than anything, more than even his own will, he wanted his Father's will. It says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know how critical that proviso, not my will, but yours be done, is because Jesus himself... When he's asked by the disciples, how do we pray? He gives us a model of prayer. And the Lord's Prayer gives that exact same proviso. The ultimate supremacy of the Father's will as being the deciding factor in all prayer. Disciples ask Jesus how to pray, and Jesus tells his disciples, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you know, the cynics among us look on that kind of statement and say, that's, well, that's the ultimate cop-out. I mean, your prayers amount to nothing but wishful, actually magical thinking. Yeah, you know, if by chance your prayer gets answered, you oh, great power in the prayer. If it doesn't answer, get answered, you say, well, it wasn't God's will. Oh, no, that's like saying heads I win, tails you lose. No matter what you pray for or what the results, you've got a ready response that automatically affirms your outcome. All to the cynic, I would say, well, you don't really understand prayer or childlike faith. See, the point of letting our requests be made known to God is twofold. One is so that God may be glorified in answering prayer if it actually is His will. And secondly, it's so that we may be strengthened and encouraged if it is not. If he does not answer our prayer according to our will. You see, when we pray, we ask for something very, very specific. Lord, will you heal Rebecca of her colon cancer? But we also trust in faith in whatever outcome he provides. And this all goes back to the childlike faith that Jesus says is so necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, you tell a child, Jesus is the boss of everything, and he believes exactly that, that Jesus is the boss of everything. Everything. And the way we adults embrace that kind of childlike faith is not by blindly expecting to get an affirmative answer to every prayer we pray exactly as we pray it, but instead by expanding our understanding of everything that Jesus is the boss of. Let me tell a child that Jesus is the boss of two kingdoms and he'll believe you. Tell him one of those kingdoms is right here on earth. Tell him this kingdom is temporarily run by a a very bad boss who Jesus came down to defeat. And that Jesus is the boss of another kingdom that's going to go on forever, that's much bigger and grander than you can ever imagine. You tell a child that, he's going to shrug his shoulder and say, okay, no big deal. I mean, That's reality. I mean, that's what mom and dad told me. Our problem is that we grow up And the more we grow up, the more we limit our understanding of of everything that Jesus is the boss of to just what we can see and feel and touch and hear. And it's not the two kingdoms that God is running simultaneously, this this kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. Nobody understood better this idea of two kingdoms than Paul. And he understood the importance of keeping both of them front and center, particularly when things of the kingdom tempt us so often to disbelieve God or just abandon our trust in him. I mean, it was Paul who said, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. A child's got no problem fixing on what is unseen, but we adults tend to lose that ability as we grow. We become fixated on what is seen, what is temporary. And The more we grow, the more we limit our understanding of everything to the one kingdom only and not to the two kingdoms that God is running simultaneously. Paul says, don't do that. Don't fix your eyes on this temporary kingdom that's right in front of your eyes, but focus more on the eternal one that you can't see. And you know, the more we're able to expand our vision to include that world, the more we can accept God's will as good and perfect, even if his answer to our prayer might be a resounding no. Now, Norma Eubank, who doesn't want me to pick her out there, I see her right there. Norma Eubank likes to include a Spurgeon quote on her emails. It's a quote that sums up the reasoning behind God's answer of no. And this is what Spurgeon said. He said, unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. Be content with such things as you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. I think we all can admire this statement in theory. I just don't think we believe it in practice. And a large part of the reason why is we just don't get this idea that both kingdoms are operating simultaneously. And so we focus on what is seen and what is temporary and it's very hard to get our eyes off that to see what is unseen and eternal through the eyes of our spirit. Now, When God says no to a prayer, he's always offering us something better and more often than not, it's himself. That's, probably, that's why prayer is never without an answer for a believer in Christ. I mean, if what you are asking for in his name is within his will, his purpose, and his desire, you will undoubtedly get what you called for in prayer. If it is not, however, you will get the grace to respond to a no answer and the ability to grow your capacity to accept whatever Jesus taught us to accept when he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, was it the Father's will that young Rebecca would be healed of her colon cancer and live a long life here in the temporary kingdom? No, the answer is no. Now, did her parents please go go unresponded to or ignored? I would say absolutely not. If you saw Rebecca's service, you would have seen her parents grieving deeply but still moving in the grace that God had given to them to respond to his no answer. And many of us have been there as well. No doubt feeling deeply the pain of loss, but also feeling deeply the presence of God's Holy Spirit just carrying us along. God never leaves or forsakes us, even when we're tempted to think otherwise. An unanswered prayer can cause us to focus far more on the gift that we did not receive, rather than the gift that the gift giver wants nothing more to give, and that is himself. You know, Abraham's a classic classic case in point. You know, God promises Abraham that he would make him a great nation. He gives him this blanket promise, and ten years go by, no child. Abraham and Sarah remain childless. No doubt Abraham and Sarah had prayed to God often for the blessing of the promised son for those ten years, and no doubt God in his wisdom at that point said, nope, not yet. Well, after Abraham rescues his his nephew Lot, he has a confrontation with the living God. This is what God says to Abraham. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. I want you to picture the scene. God appears to to Abraham, and he tells him flat out that he's not only Abraham's protector, but he is also his very great reward. Abraham's reaction to this very great reward, I think it's just like yours and mine might be. He says, uh, no thanks, God. I mean, you told me I was going to be the father of a great nation. You told me I was going to have a son. So far, it just hasn't happened. If you really want to give me a gift I'd appreciate, why don't you hold off on the great reward and give me a son? Now, look at Abraham's response from God's perspective. God's been weighing the balance and found wanting, especially when compared to a son. See, that's because Abraham could only see what was seen. He could only see what was temporary. And with his eyes focused on that, he couldn't see the value in what God was offering him because it was unseen. It was eternal. God was offering Abraham the greatest gift a human being could ever possibly receive, the most valuable gift a human being could ever get. He was offering him the gift of himself. But Abraham couldn't see the value in it compared to the value that he would set his eyes on, which was gaining a son. And Abraham's the father of our faith. I mean, if he had a hard time finding a, a value in the unseen, I suppose it's understandable when we find ourselves in the exact same position. But that takes us right back to where we started this morning. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So if you're finding it hard to have childlike trust, I invite you first go to the cross. And then go to the kingdom that we seldom go to. The one that is running right alongside the one that we are part of. The one that we can feel and touch and understand. The one that is eternal. Not the one that is temporary. As you take the cup, ask God for the grace. Even if it takes fighting and clawing back. To return to the place where our faith is magical in the best sense childlike, filled with simple trust no matter what the outcome, we know that God is good. First Corinthians 11 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So drink. This is the part that we call hard hands and feet where we try to understand some kind of practical way of what it means to remember Jesus. And one thing I know that that I just wanted to comment on that I've been praying for for a long, long time, which we're really starting to see being answered abundantly, is the gift of the presence of children. You saw this just mess of kids all around here this morning. For years I've been saying, if there's not the sound of little ones, if there's not an active Sunday school or junior church or children's church, This church is in a death spiral. That's just the way it works. And what I would like us to have is the exact same attitude that Jesus had towards little ones. Faith is so easy for them. They're so trusting. And in a sense, because they are so trusting, in a sense, they're extraordinarily delicate. It's extremely easy to crush the spirit of a little one. But it's also very easy to encourage one. I still remember Paul McCardle, you know Joanna's dad, in his what mid-80s. We were at a prayer meeting, and he was talking about all the way back to when he, he was six years old, how an older man in his church had encouraged him, paid attention to him, affirmed him, and that for his entire life, that never left him. And I just think, you have that effect on somebody six years old, just by being affirming, just by encouraging somebody, how remarkably easy it is to elevate a little one. So don't think for a minute that you can't have that same kind of positive effect on any one of these little ones. And so what I would like us to do this morning is to focus in on the little ones in our congregation. They are quite literally the future of this church. And if you have a hard time thinking of any of them, if, if, if you have no idea at all of what I'm talking about, maybe God's telling us time to refocus. It's time to see them as precious, time to see them as a critical component to the life of this church. And so what I would like each of us to do is is to take one of them to pray for. And if you can't picture them right now, just picture the little ones as they're sitting up there singing. Just think of their parents and pray for their kids by name. If you don't know any names, ask some parents some kid's name. Uh, We just want them to know how much they matter, not just to mom and dad, but to this church. So let's pray. Father, you have said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. Lord, you have once again blessed us with children. I, I remember going through a considerable period of years when there was hardly a one. And we're grateful and thankful for the little ones that we see. We're grateful and thankful for the opportunity that it presents. And we want to pray for them. We want to specifically pray for us that we would have the understanding and the ability to be an encouragement to them, that we can help in some small way shape and mold their understanding of your goodness and your love for them.